Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Unfortunately, Sergeant Paul isn't feeling well tonight, so um, he's not going to be joining us, but he did insist that the show go on. So for tonight's episode, we are going to be doing a second part to our legendary aircraft series where we talk about um, different aircraft that we think have earned the title of legendary. So last time we talked about the SR-71 Blackbird, A-10 Warthog, and the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress. Now this week, we're going to be covering the uh, Grumman F-14 Tomcat, and McConnell will be talking about the Messerschmitt ME-262 Schwalbe. Um, Sergeant Paul was supposed to be talking about the, um, the MiG-25 Foxbat, uh, so hopefully in future, we will get to learn a little bit more about that aircraft as I've read up on it and it is a truly incredible aircraft. So first of all, we're going to have Sergeant McConnell tell us a little bit about uh, the ME-262 Schwalbe, better known as the first fighter jet in history. So Sergeant McConnell, tell us all about this aircraft. Thank you, Sergeant Anderson. So many years before World War II, Germans saw the great potential of aircrafts that used jet engines. Within a week of the invasion of Poland, they adopted an engine for advanced fighter aircraft. During this time, the ME-262 Schwalbe was already under construction. The original design was very different from the aircraft that eventually entered service with the wing root-mounted engines. The progression of the original design was delayed greatly by the technical issues involving the new jet engines, since the engines were very slow to arrive. Messer Smith moved the engines from the wing roots to the underwing pods, allowing them to be changed if needed. This would turn out to be important, both for availability and maintenance. Test flights began on April of 1941, but around April of 1943, problems with the engine development had slowed the production of the aircraft considerably. The aircraft made its first successful flight entirely on jet power on the 18th of July, 1942. 27 um, Allied aircraft. So McConnell, I'm just wondering, when it says um, its first entirely jet-operated flight, does that mean before this they had like uh, propellers just to sort of test out the technology and like to test out the design? I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. I, I think that does make sense, considering that jet technology was very new at the time and uh, they never really used it before. I guess it does make sense that they were starting off with propellers. All right, sorry to interrupt, uh, keep going. Um, 27 Allied aircraft were shot down, but the but 31 ME-262s, um, more than half of the defending force were lost. Now I'm gonna move on to some of the statistics. So it had a crew of one, it had a length of um, 34 feet and nine inches, a wingspan of 41 feet, four inches, a max takeoff weight of 15,719 pounds, Power plant of two Euchers, UMO, um, 004B1 axle flow turbojet engines, producing 1,980 pounds of thrust each, giving the 262 a max speed of roughly 900 kilometers an hour. It had a maximum range of 1,050 kilometers. It had a service ceiling of 37,000 feet. And for armament, it had four 30 millimeter MK 108 cannons. 24 R4M rockets, and it could hold either two 550-pound uh, bombs or um, two 1,100 bombs. And then lastly, 
we have some interesting facts about this aircraft. Um, so the ME-262 was actually the first jet to be used in war, and there are currently three repli replicas of the ME-262 still flying, one being in Germany and the other two being in the United States. All right, thank you, All Sergeant right, thank McConnell. You, sir. Sorry, I think we just heard a little bit of feedback there, but uh, thank you for that, Sergeant McConnell. Uh, just one thing I quickly wanted to ask was, um, this sort of designed to be a uh, multi-role aircraft because when you're talking about the armaments, it sounded like it had um, weapons for fighting other aircraft, for fighting ground targets, for fighting troops. So was it sort of designed with a few different things in mind, like a few different roles in mind? Yeah, so there were different models made for different things. Okay, thank you. But um, like the number one priority was obviously dogfighting, right? Like taking out enemy bombers. Yeah, of course. Okay, thank you. And I also just wanted to touch on that uh, one statistic you gave where they lost 31 aircraft and only shot down 27. That is something I never knew about this aircraft because uh, we say it's a legendary aircraft, but it had honestly a terrible combat rating. It lost more aircraft than it shot down. However, I think it deserves the title of legendary simply because it was the first fighter jet to be used in history. I honestly think there was great potential with this aircraft, just it was brought in late in the war when Germany was already losing. I think that's one big problem with uh, Germany during World War II. They waited to get a lot of their very powerful weapons right until the end of the war. Like uh, you see this a lot with their tanks too, like the Tiger tank, that didn't start up until 42 when the war was already sort of shifting in the other direction. I think if they had had these weapons a lot sooner, uh, the war would have gone very differently and the Germans might've had more of a chance. So I actually think then it's good that maybe this aircraft didn't reach its full potential since we might have lost a lot more guys and the war probably would have turned out very differently. But there definitely was a lot of potential here and it absolutely changed the history of aviation forever after this. Yes, I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. All right, so moving on from the uh, ME-262 Schwalbe, let's talk about uh, a little bit more recent history. So in the late 1960s, I said recent history, and we're talking about the 1960s, but this was 20 years after World War II, so it's more recent than what uh, McConnell was talking about. Uh, right, so in the late 1960s, the U.S. Navy began developing a new twin-engine, two-seat, dual-tail, multi-role fighter to replace its aging fleet of F-4 Phantom and F-111B aircraft. Okay, they made everything uh, something to do with the number two in this one. It had two engines, two tails, and two crew members. Right, so the Navy narrowed down the selection to two companies, Grumman and McDonnell Douglas. Grumman's entry was, of course, the F-14 Tomcat. And the Navy fell in love with the Tomcat almost instantly, and with good reason. Many historians consider the F-14 to be one of the best fighter jets of all time. In fact, the F-14 remains in service with some air forces even to this day. So this aircraft began its service like in the early 1970s, and like right at the turn of the 60s, 70s decade. So more than 50 years on, there are still actually air forces that use this. Actually, I think the only one in the world right now that uses this is Iran. So uh, it's long been retired from a lot of Western countries, but yeah, there are still uh, people who use this. There are still organizations who use this 50 years later, just to show how good of an aircraft this actually is. Uh, so, 
The F-14 Tomcat also has a reputation for being one of the most famous fighter jets of all time, as it was the star of the movie Top Gun. Now, we talked about the movie Top Gun last season. Absolutely amazing movie. McConnell, I see you shaking your head there. Do you not like Top Gun? I have never actually seen Top Gun before, which I know is insane. And everybody listening to this is going to think I'm crazy. But I actually just, I haven't seen it. We scolded Paul for the exact same thing last year when we asked him about Top Gun. We're going to scold you for it now. Yeah, I should probably watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's on Amazon Prime. I actually think I own like three or four different copies of it, but it is an awesome movie. And you, <laughs> first of all, your dad is a pilot. Second of all, you want to be a pilot. How have you not seen this movie? I have no clue. Um, but, you know, I'll probably watch it now because I don't want you guys scolding me. You certainly do not. But watch Top Gun. That is an amazing movie. It is a must-see for anyone who dreams of flying. And I am shocked that you have never seen it. Actually, I think last time we scolded Paul, you were joining in on that. So I don't know how that worked. But yeah, watch Top Gun. I'm never in the wrong, obviously. That's my biggest secret. Everybody knows. Okay, yeah, you're never in the wrong. All right. So it was also actually in uh, several other notable 80s films. Nothing anywhere near as big as Top Gun. Like, um, there was one movie, Final Countdown. I briefly read up on it. wasn't anywhere near as big as Top Gun. And then the movie Executive Decision, again, nowhere near as big as Top Gun. God, we've gotten so off track here. We're just talking about Top Gun now. But you know what? That's part of the F-14 story. It was an absolutely iconic aircraft for an absolutely iconic movie. In fact, one quick little fact just while we're on Top Gun is that one third of Navy recruits in the years following the movie's release actually said they joined because they saw that movie. So the Navy's investment in it really paid off. Right, so enough about Top Gun. Let's talk about some of the statistics of the Tomcat. So this aircraft had a crew of two. It had one pilot and one Rio. Now, RIO stands for Radar Intercept Officer. So going back to the analogy of Top Gun, it's uh, pretty much what Goose did. He sits in the back and he operates the radar to uh, tell Maverick where they need to go, where the enemy planes are, and uh, pretty much where any danger is. And that's essentially it. His job is to help Maverick in any way that he can. Just to clarify, in case there's anyone else out there like McConnell who hasn't seen Top Gun, Maverick is the pilot and Goose is the RIO, okay? All right, so it had a length of 62 feet, 9 inches, a wingspan of 64 feet, 1.5 inches. Um, I should clarify that, that that was when it was in the fully extended mode. The Tomcat is quite unique because it had the ability to um, change the um, sort of the swept back, like the swiftness of its wings. So it could be very aerodynamic and very narrow, or it could be very uh, wide and spread out. Now, the reason for this was so that it could land very shortly on a very short runway. So this was designed for carrier landings where you'd need to be going slow, but then it wanted to be able to go as fast as possible once it was in the air. So as far as I know, this is one of the only aircraft to do that. I don't want to go as far as to say uh, it was the only aircraft because the second I say that, I know someone's going to jump in and correct me on that. But I have never in my life seen another aircraft that has um, a, a wing that can be swept differently depending on how the pilot sets it. 
So that is uh, one thing that's truly unique and truly amazing about this aircraft. Uh, so at a max takeoff weight of just over 74,000 pounds, uh, had a power plant of two General Electric F-110 afterburning turbofans, which produced a maximum of 28,200 pounds of thrust, giving the Tomcat a top speed of Mach 2.34 or 2,485 kilometers per hour. So I remember uh, when we were talking about the Schwalbe, we, we were thinking that 900 kilometers an hour was fast. That is nothing compared to what the Tomcat can do. This thing can do nearly two and a half times the speed of sound. It is absolutely insane. I just want to point out that that's something you really don't see in a lot of fighter jets nowadays. You don't see them going really faster than Mach 2 very often. And one of the main reasons that the Tomcat can do this is because of the way its wings are swept back and the way that that can be changed. So we just talked about that. But uh, so moving on, the Tomcat had a range of 3,000 kilometers, had a service ceiling of 53,000 feet, and had a G limit of 7.5. So what this means is that it could basically experience seven and a half times the force of gravity before it would start uh, running into problems. So whatever you're feeling right now, Imagine that you weighed seven and a half times more. Just imagine what that would feel like. And that's pretty much what this aircraft could do before it would start running into problems, which is absolutely insane. Um, so for armament, the F-14 had uh, one M61A1 20 millimeter cannon, as well as 10 hard points, being able to hold a wide variety of different missiles, bombs, rockets, sensors, and drop tanks. So the F-14 Tomcat was really designed to be an all-purpose aircraft, really a multi-role fighter. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about the F-35 and how uh, sometimes fighters like this don't always uh, work out too well because like, they're trying to do a jack-of-all-trades thing, but then it turns out that they're really not the master of any. Like They're good at sort of everything, but they're not great at like any one specific area. However, the Tomcat was not like that at all. It was absolutely amazing at pretty much all of the jobs it was assigned to do. So it was able to hold uh, AIM-54 Phoenix, AIM-7 Sparrow, and AIM-9 Sidewinder missiles, which allowed them to engage air targets at long, medium, and short range. That's one thing that the F-14 Tomcat was quite infamous for, its ability to fire on an enemy and actually hit them from well over 100 kilometers away to the point where you wouldn't even be able to see your enemy, but you could already be firing on them. Uh, again, something that is coming out like in the 60s and the 70s, that is absolutely insane technology. You have to remember that they really didn't have computers, they didn't have satellites, but they didn't have many satellites back then. So it is absolutely insane that they were able to come up with this sort of technology just 20 or 30 years after the end of World War II. Absolutely insane. So it could also hold a large amount of rockets and laser guided bombs, which allowed it to support troops on the ground. So this thing, it was not just meant for dogfighting, it was not just meant for interception, it was also meant for supporting troops on the ground. So um, this was at a time before the A-10 existed. And you have to remember that this was designed to replace the F-4 Phantom. And the F-4 Phantom was very similar to uh, what the A-10 would have been doing, where it needed to uh, attack troops on the ground and basically try and do a bit of carpet bombing and try and do strategic bombing. So it needed to have the ability to do that in addition to being able to dogfight. Um, 
In addition to that, it could also hold a variety of different sensors, reconnaissance equipment, and targeting pods, which gave it the ability to fire with high levels of precision. Alongside these pods, it could also carry two drop tanks, which allowed it to receive fuel and stay in the air for far longer. So it already has a pretty long range of 3,000 kilometers, but when you add these two external tanks that attach onto the bottom, it, it really adds a lot more range and really a lot more variety of what the uh, Tomcat can do. So during its service life with the US Navy, which was from 1970 to 2006, so actually that means I was actually alive when this aircraft flew for about a few months, but it's, it's nice to see that there was at least some overlap there considering how much of an awesome aircraft this was. Uh, right, so during its service life, the Tomcat scored a total of five aerial victories. Well, this might not sound like a lot, what we have to remember is that for most of the last five decades, the United States has not been at war with many large and airfaring nations. The majority of conflicts that it's been engaged with were counterinsurgency or peacekeeping operations. Uh, in this scenario, the F-14 still served with great success. So I said that it was designed to uh, work in a ground support role as well, that it could um, definitely be effective against troops on the ground. So it really did help in these scenarios too. Even though it wasn't dogfighting, which was its primary role, it still was a great success. Uh, following its retirement from the US Navy, the F-14 actually remained in service with the Iranian Air Force, where it has also had great success. Um, in this Air Force, I was reading up on some of the combat history, it has actually gotten to do a lot more dogfighting, and it has actually gotten uh, a lot more aerial victories and a lot more kills than it did in the United States Navy. Um, one interesting thing, and I guess this is sort of a sad thing, but it means that since Iran is the only country left still using the F-14 Tomcat, when it was decommissioned, the US Navy not only scrapped them, they took apart all of the parts, like all of the components of the Tomcat, and they completely melted them down and reshaped them into other things. And the reason they did this is because since they were sold to uh, Iran, they have since become pretty hostile towards the United States. And so they wouldn't want any spare parts for these aircraft being able to fall into their hands. So that does mean it's fairly rare to find one of these aircraft still in uh, good functioning uh, condition in the United States. There's quite a few of them in museums or in parks, things like that. But if you ever get to find one that's still running in America, you should consider yourself very lucky because that is very, very rare. All right. So with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So unfortunately, we didn't get to hear about the uh, MiG-25 Foxbat. Hopefully we'll get to hear about that in a later episode and we hope that uh, Sergeant Paul is feeling better as soon as possible. Uh, and with all that said, we'd like to once again, thank you for listening. Goodbye and we'll see you next time. Have a good night, everyone.